The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 6, 45 through 56. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to, the, to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. I've been noticing that there's a trend that's going on uh, in our culture. The more and more, uh, the more and more influence social media has on us, this trend kind of arises. Uh, I think we're all, at least we all witness it. I think we're all probably part of this trend. I, I know that I am um, just as guilty as the next guy. And this trend is, it's the idea of putting the best Um, the best, most desirable version of ourselves forward, putting it on display on social media. So people would look at our profiles, they'd look at our Twitter feeds and be like, that dude is cool. That dude has the life. That chick's got it going on. They got, like, their life must be awesome, right? Think about it. What was the last photo you posted online? What was the last status update? I'm guessing You were smiling, your kids were probably sitting there all cute, Uh, you probably had some good news to share, right? This is is what it looks like. And there's a question like, why? Why why do we do this? I think there's many reasons, but I think one of the reasons why we do this, why we want to put the best version of ourselves forward, is that putting this polished version of ourselves on social media makes it seem, and kind of to mask and to conceal the real us. The, the us that faces difficulties and struggles, the us that, that there's just a lot of messiness about us, right? Think about it. We never share photos of ourselves with a double chin, right? We don't share photos where we might have that lazy eye thing going on. We don't, we don't share status updates like the kids have made me lock myself in the bathroom again, we don't share status updates like really struggling with my marriage, winky face. We don't, we don't share those things, right? We just don't do it. We don't share those things, let alone do we share the deepest insecurities that are really going on in our heart. And just because we don't share them and just because we don't acknowledge them on social media doesn't mean that they don't exist because the reality is that these are real struggles. Like, they're, we're going through things that are heavy, that are weighty, that, that cause us great um, turmoil in our lives. And I think one of the reasons why this putting the, the best version of ourselves forward is so appealing is because it kind of allows us to kind of back out of dealing with the real difficult situations, in some cases, 
right? We, we can kind of escape in some ways or another because I think it comes down to we have a hard time dealing with these things. We have a hard time figuring out how to cope, how to manage, how to move through the difficult situations. Now, most of us have been around long enough to know that the Sunday school answer to this question is when we're facing our insecurities, our, our fears, our struggles, is to go to Jesus, right? We know that, that, um, that if we would just go to Jesus, things would be okay. But there's a problem with this because most of us have a skewed version of Jesus. I would say that all of us have a sort of skewed version of Jesus, it's a false version of Jesus. It's pretty, and this false version is pretty useless in our struggles because it's either powerful but distant from us or it's, it's a spiritual equivalent of a teddy bear where Jesus is with us and he can comfort us, but he can't really help us or be of some sort of comfort in a greater sense where he's in control of the situation. So only the real Jesus has both. The Jesus that we see in the Bible has the power to help us in our situation, the power to change the situation, and the ability to comfort us in our deepest struggles. This is the Jesus in the Bible, right? This is the Jesus that we meet in Mark's gospel. And over the past five months, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, Mark's account of who Jesus is, the person and work of Jesus. And it's been an interesting sermon series Because it's provided many of us the opportunity to see how inadequate our Build-A-Bear version of Jesus is in comparison to the real Jesus. This Build-A-Bear Jesus that we create is created by picking and choosing elements of Jesus that we like. The loving, the compassionate, the mild-mannered, the wise, the comfortable Jesus. And and hodgepodging these things together in order to create a sort of safe, safe, and comfortable version of Jesus that we can snuggle up to at the end of the day. But as we'll see, and I think as, as we experience this sort of uh, Build-A-Bear Jesus, this Jesus, this version of Jesus, isn't necessarily helpful to us in, in the greatest sense. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't push us through. It doesn't give us the power to go through these tough times. Now, some of us realize that, and, and this is kind of where I'm at, where I realize that this version of Jesus that I create isn't going to really sustain me through the tough times. And, and part of, so I know that, but part of me isn't really willing to, or I'm a little reluctant to let go of this Build-A-Bear version of Jesus and embrace the real Jesus. And I think that the br- biggest reason of this, especially for me, is because of fear, that I'm afraid or we're afraid that we might find something out about the real Jesus that has implications on our lives, right? But we tell ourselves, or at least we kind of reason with ourselves to hold on to this Build-A-Bear Jesus by saying, at least, you know, with this version of a Build-A-Bear Jesus, I know what to expect. I know he's comfortable. I know what he will say. And the reason we know this is because we've created him. Jeremiah makes it clear that any God that man makes, that any any sort of form of God that man tries to create and concoct isn't even a God. It's nothing like God. So this means that our Build-A-Bear version of Jesus is not capable of sustaining us through the difficult storms that we'll face in life. This should be startling to us, right? This this thing that we thought we could depend on, suddenly our Build-A-Bear version of Jesus is is insignificant and unable to sustain us. And so if we're going to make it through life's difficult seasons, if we're going to have 
a meaningful life, if we're going to experience change, we need a Jesus who isn't limited by the constructs of our own minds. We need the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And so we see this today in Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water. We get a glimpse at this real Jesus and what it means to put our trust in the real Jesus. And so as I unpack this passage today, there's three truths that I really want you to grab onto because I think this is, this is really important to us, especially as we're facing struggles. The first one is that Jesus is God, right? It seems simple. We'll unpack that. But Jesus is God. The second one is that, that if Jesus is God, then this means that Jesus, the God-man, is in the storm, that he moves toward us in the storm. But, and third, that Jesus not only is in the storm, but he's above the storm, all right? And it's these three things that I think we will understand the real Jesus that will bring us great hope and comfort in our struggles. Up to this point in Mark, we've been seeing Jesus revealing who he is, sometimes in subtle ways, other times in very obvious ways. And most of the crowds, as uh, the Verse 54 here in that 53 to uh, 56 there shows most of the crowds recognize Jesus as some sort of a teacher or a philosopher. He's got new insights to life. He's, he can do cool miracles. He can heal people. But at the same time that the crowds are entertained by Jesus and, and have come to expect something from him, the religious leaders really dislike Jesus. They're currently planning uh, a way to kill Jesus, to take him away, have him killed, because this Jesus guy doesn't fit inside of their religious box. And so we have kind of the two ends of the spectrum. Like people really love Jesus for, for what he offers them, and then there's guys that hate Jesus. But then here are the disciples. They're somewhere on this, on this um, continuum, and they're not quite sure where, we fit, where they fit in here just yet. Um, up to this point, none of the disciples are quite sure what to think about Jesus, or at least Mark hasn't told us what they think about Jesus. They've been following Jesus all around the area. They've had the opportunity to see Jesus do incredible things, some tremendous miracles, incredible healings. In the previous passage, they witnessed Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, but but the disciples are still not quite sure who this Jesus guy is. The 12 disciples seem eager to follow Jesus, but they're not, in certain, they're not certain of who they're following. This is proof that being in close proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee an understanding of who Jesus is. That means that we can play the church game. We can go to church. We can do the small group thing. We can read our Bibles. We can do all our time spending time around Jesus and Jesus things without actually grasping the truth of who Jesus is. This is... This ought to alarm us, right? This should make us ask the question to ourselves, like, how well do I really know this Jesus? And there's this thought um, from those who are skeptical of Christianity or those who are kind of young in the faith, they have this thought that if I could just see Jesus do a miracle, if I could just see it with my own eyes, if I could, if I could witness an arm grow back, if I could see him feed 5,000 people again, then I would believe. But when we look at the disciples, we see that this isn't necessarily the case. These disciples have been with Jesus. They've seen everything that he's done so far. But not only have they seen with their own eyes, they've actually been part of what they've done, what Jesus has been doing. It was Jesus who sent them out earlier in chapter 6 and said, hey, I want you guys to go out. I want you to, to do the ministry. I want you to go heal people. I want you to go cast out demons. And the disciples go and they actually do the work of the ministry. They actually do stuff that Jesus was doing. 
And it was Jesus who told the disciples to go break the bread and hand it out, give, distribute the fish, right? It's the, the disciples were taking part of some of these incredible things, but they still didn't quite understand. So when we see that, that whole thing just kind of dissipates. <clears throat> and now... The disciples, they, they still don't know who Jesus was. They, they knew there was something special about him. They know that there was something powerful about him. They know that he was a great teacher. But, but they haven't been able to, to answer the question yet, is Jesus God? Can Jesus really be God? And now these confused disciples are being sent out. Jesus sends them abruptly out to see where the last time we saw them in a boat, they were asking themselves this question. They were literally saying, who is this Jesus guy? Who is this that controls the wind and the waves? Who is Jesus? And in this week's passage, Jesus is going to explicitly answer this question. Verse 45 tells us that Jesus sends these disciples out on a journey to Bethsaida. According to scholars, this is a six to eight mile journey across the sea, Should have taken them about six to eight hours. Jesus sends them out in the evening time, late afternoon. So before before morning hits, they should be there. But in this situation, as they're crossing the sea, this is an exceptionally dreadful experience for them. The disciples that sail, they're met by great winds that are opposed to them, which cause them to make headway painfully, as it says. They can't get to where they want to go. For hours and hours and hours, they're rowing in an attempt to conquer the strong wind and get to their destination. And I just want to pause for a minute and explain, because not all of us have experience with rowing, but I want to explain to you the intensity of rowing. Rowing is one of, arguably one of the most physical and mentally demanding sports known to man. Nearly every part of the body is engaged during a row. It's a test of raw raw power, coordination, and stamina. In order to stay competitive, rowers must maintain a high intensity throughout the entirety of the race. This not only requires the ability to do this physically, but also mentally, to have the mental capacity to push through the pain, to continue on even when it's extremely difficult. And it's said that rowing a 2,000-meter race, which would take me on a rower about nine to ten minutes, or if you're a professional, it could probably take you six minutes to do it. Uh, If if you're rowing through a 2,000-meter race, it's the equivalent of playing two basketball games, two full-length basketball games back-to-back. So there's there's incredibly taxing element about rowing. It's incredibly intense. Now, ideally, rowing's done on smooth water with a little wind, but the disciples find themselves facing a very difficult storm. It's not a life-threatening storm, but it's a very difficult storm where the wind is blowing hard and it's really preventing them to get from where they want to go. And as they have been rowing, I'm sure they are completely exhausted, both physically, emotionally, and we know they're spiritually exhausted because verse 52 tells us they have hard hearts, right? They're spiritually drained. And while not all of us can relate to the physical, um, the physical intensity of rowing, um, I think all of us can can relate to the, the, the struggle of being caught in a storm like this in our own lives, a storm that demands a lot out of us emotionally, relationally, physically, or spiritually. <clears throat> and when we do that, we find ourselves exhausted, right? Last August um, presented a season of struggle for me like this. It was, I was coming toward the end of my church planting internship, um, and there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there was a, the, 
The financial team wasn't quite sure if there'd be enough room in the budget to bring me on full-time because up to this point I had raised um, some support so I could do what I was doing through my internship. And, and so this was kind of always looming in the back of my mind is what's next? There's a lot of fear and anxiety in that. Like I, The uncertainty of it was quite the struggle. And I was just unsure about my future. And then on top of this, I'm, I'm kind of facing some physical issues where I'm I find out, I hate to be the guy that talks about gluten intolerance, but I find out that I have a gluten intolerance. And it's put a lot of physical strain on me, right? My, my body is, is tired, it's worn out. So I've got this stuff going on in the back of my mind. I've got, I've got this physical stuff that's going on. And then on top of it, I don't even know how to, I, like I know how to deal with it, but I'm not doing a good job dealing with it. I don't know, my heart is hard toward God. I, I don't know how to go to him and really rely on him in these situations. And so I just feel, com- felt completely drained, completely empty at the end of myself. And I know that as I share my experience that I'm not the only one who's experienced something like this. A lot of you can, can relate to a situation like that, you know, where you're feeling physically, emotionally, spiritually drained. And if you're not, if you haven't felt that storm yet, or, or maybe you you don't think it's coming, let me tell you, it's coming. There'll be a day that it's coming. Maybe you've been out of a storm, you're out of a storm now, maybe you're headed into a storm, but one day that storm will come. And for some of us, it's going to be a physical struggle, right, where your body isn't keeping up with your mind. Perhaps doctors have given you an undesirable diagnosis, maybe of cancer. Uh, Maybe it just means you can't engage in the sort of physical activity that you like to engage in. Maybe you're struggling with infertility, whatever it is. It prevents you from getting to where you want to go. It, it, it prevents you from, from getting to your shore, right? It puts you in the midst of struggle. Maybe you're facing relational struggle. There's a tension between you and your kids, or maybe it's a, a marital struggle. You're having difficulties with your husband or your wife where things are always kind of in this constant point of tension. There's a lot of struggle, and we want nothing more but to get past the struggle but no matter what we do, we find ourselves still here in struggle. And maybe the struggles aren't necessarily situational, but there's something deep within our heart, something that we're wrestling with. You spend every ounce of energy constantly trying to prove yourself, right? Trying to be good enough. Or maybe you're, you're struggling for control. You want to have control over your life so you, you can kind of alleviate the fears and insecurities of the unknown. But whatever it is, whatever the struggle is, the struggle is real, the struggle is hard. And, and a lot of times in these struggles, it can feel like we're, we're all by ourselves, that we're rowing and rowing, we're fighting wave after wave, only to find ourselves in the same place, asking the question, where are you, God? Why haven't you shown up yet? Why aren't you doing something about this? Why am I still in this place? Most of us don't have to imagine too hard um, to relate to what the disciples are experiencing while they're here in this boat, right? Just imagine the conversation that they're having. We should be there by now. This has gone on long enough. If we just try harder, maybe we'll get there. If God would just do something and on and on, things like this. This is the the exact same dialogue that goes on in our hearts while we're facing struggles. And at this point, the disciples, they're right at the halfway point of their voyage. They should be to shore by now. And, and I can't, can't imagine that they have too much energy left. They've spent, um, spent it all basically just to not lose the ground that they've already gained. And so hopelessness has probably set in. 
They're thinking back to the last time they experienced a difficult storm like this and really wishing that Jesus was here in the boat right now to speak to the waves, to speak to the wind, and stop it once and for all. But that's where the problem is. It seems as if Jesus has left them. Jesus is back at shore praying, right? He's sitting up on the mountain. And it seems as if Jesus has abandoned them at sea. But as we look at verse 47 and 48, we see that's far from the case. If you want to look with me, it says, When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So Jesus didn't leave these guys alone, right? In one sense, yes, physically he's not there, but Jesus can see what's going on. They haven't been abandoned. Jesus has been tracking their progress. He was well aware of their struggle that they were facing. He saw how painstakingly slow they were going. He knew that there would be sweat on their brow, blisters on their hand, panic in their hearts. Jesus was well aware of this. He knew precisely what was going on. And so he doesn't just watch. He moves toward them. Jesus waits until the fourth watch, if you keep reading in verse 48. He, moved, he waits until the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning, and he moves toward them. He could have done it in the first 20 minutes of their struggle. He could have saved them sweat and the frustration. He could have come within the first watch of the night, but Jesus waits until the fourth watch of the night. It's like he waited until the very last minute. After all the energy has been exerted and the disciples have reached their limit, Jesus finally comes to the relief. And this should cause us to ask this question, why? Why would Jesus wait this long? Why would Jesus let the disciples keep paddling and rowing, fighting wave after wave? I think Charles Spurgeon says it best when he says this, that when we come to the end of self, we come to the beginning of Christ. What Jesus was doing was letting the disciples exert all of their energy to prove to them that they were incapable of going where they needed to go. These disciples could spend all their energy. They could give the old college try. They could pour out blood, sweat, and tears into this, but they could not succeed. They were going to fail. They couldn't prove themselves in this. So Jesus comes to show them in the midst of the storm, while they're exhausted, just how powerful and capable he is. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is showing us the weakness of God is stronger than the power of man. If we wanted to see Jesus come into our lives with power, this is the place that we need to be. If we want to see Jesus come in and do something great, we need to be at the end of ourselves. This is the only way that we see the glory of Jesus. This is the only way that we'll understand how necessary and how intoxicating the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And I know that there are people who are listening to this, and they think that this is backwards, right? I have friends who think the same way, that, that, that we have this desire down inside of us to be powerful, to be strong, to press through. And you might be thinking that, that to be weak, to come to the end of ourselves is just n- nothing but weakness, and weakness produces nothing, right? You think that I, I don't need God, I can do this on my own. You press through, you pride yourself on being mentally tough, self-disciplined, being determined, and you very me- well might be those things. But being strong and powerful in yourself, it doesn't work, at least not long term. You might feel like you made it through a storm or maybe a a few big storms, 
But what about the next one that's going to be bigger? What about when you face storms on multiple fronts? Will you be able to handle those? Eventually, you'll get tired. And after, after all, that's a lot of rowing to be doing. But I can assure you there's a storm ahead of you that you can't win. There's a storm that's waiting for you, and it's, it's a storm of death. Eventually, you'll die, right? You'll come to the end of your life. You'll fight through the struggle, and you'll lose. And then what? Where is your power and strength? If you want real power and strength, the kind of power and strength that has the power to, to conquer death, then the only place where you can find that is in Jesus. He's the one who defeated death. The tomb is empty. No one goes to visit him on Memorial Day because he's not in the ground. But the only way to get this power and strength of Jesus is to come to the end of yourself to admit your weakness, because the only way that you're going to get through the storm of death is to die to yourself and to live in Christ. This is the great paradox of Christianity. The way to be strong is to be weak. To find true power, you have to confess your weakness. And when Jesus comes to the disciples, it's unlike anything anyone else could ever do. Verse 48 finishes that he came to them walking on the sea. As the waves topple over each other and crash into the boat, here comes Jesus leisurely strutting across the wind and the waves, right? Stepping on wave after wave, making his way towards the disciples. It's absolutely incredible, and it makes sense why the disciples would have the sort of reaction that they did. Verse 49, take a look at it. It says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they saw him and they were terrified, right? Disciples are terrified. They're not just afraid now. They're utterly terrified. We've been seeing this this theme of fear getting built. And now disciples have kind of come to the peak where they're absolutely terrified. Why? Because they're seeing the real Jesus. Their Build-A-Bear version of Jesus is being destroyed. This Jesus, the real Jesus, has the power to walk across the waves. They're thinking, nobody, there's nobody that can walk on water. It's humanly impossible. They're thinking that this is more likely, it's more likely that this is a ghost than it is Jesus. But they couldn't be more wrong. They see Jesus walking on the water, doing what no other human can do. Jesus has moved past his subtle hints at being God, and now he's being up in their face about it. He's saying, I can do something that no one else can do. There's something about me that's significantly different. Jesus is saying to them, there's something completely unique about me that you're going to need to know. This is a game changer. But it isn't just walking water, what Jesus does to, to make this clear. There's something else he does. You may have picked up on these strange words at the end of verse 48 where he says he meant to pass by them. This isn't just Jesus trying to move past by them as if he was trying to get to the other side of the, to the, of the sea before the disciples could get there or move past them undetected. Jesus is moving past them much like God did when he tucked Moses away in the cleft of a rock to show him his glory. In Exodus, Exodus 30, 19, God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God told Moses, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to tell you my name. And Jesus does the exact same thing with his disciples. He passes by his disciples in a terrifying sight and displays his glory. And it's right here in the midst of the storm where Jesus shows his disciples 
just how powerful and how glorious he is. And then at the end of verse, excuse me, at the end of verse 50, as the disciples are freaking out, he says to them, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. When Jesus says, it is I, he's using the exact same language that God used when he passed by Moses. Jesus is saying, it's me, I am Yahweh, I am God, I am. This is Jesus' explicit claim to being God. It's a radical statement. It's something that you can't just move by quickly and and agree with and kind of nod your head with. This is something that we either have to agree with and and cling, cling to it joyfully or we have to reject it emphatically because Either Jesus is God, he's actually who he says he is, or Jesus is not a God at all, and he's a liar and a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis says. As our culture holds to the morals of Jesus looser and looser, there still remains this thought that Jesus was a good teacher. He, he was a philosopher, that we could learn something from him on, on a moral account. And this is the idea that we can take the moral lessons of Jesus, but only the moral lessons that we like, and we can kind of lay him out to some sort of moral Christianity. This is exactly what Thomas Jefferson did. He took a Bible and he clipped out segments of the Bible that, that had any sort of, and removed any sort of segments that alluded to the fact that Jesus was God or any sort of spiritual sort of uh, magnificent sort of displays of supernatural power or anything of that. And he took the moral teachings of Jesus and constructed it into his own sort of Bible. But this this doesn't really make sense because then we're just reducing the moral teachings of Jesus down to the same level of Mother Teresa or of Gandhi or of some other sort of philosopher or thought about how we should live. And there's great foolishness in this. It doesn't make sense to pick and choose from the teachings of a man who has much, made such radical claims on his identity as God. Unless Jesus says, unless Jesus is who he says he is, it's not logical to take advice from a man who got killed for claiming to be God. It doesn't make sense. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in Mere Christianity. He says this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and claim him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And what C.S. Lewis is saying here is he's urging us toward the reality of accepting that Jesus is either God or he's nothing. That it's all or nothing with Jesus. That he's more than just a good teacher. He's more than a spiritual revolutionary. He's more than a humanitarian, more than a miracle worker. Jesus is God. And before this passage can be of any source of comfort to us, we have to answer this question for ourselves. Is Jesus God? If he isn't God, then we might as well go home and turn on the Oprah reruns, right? But if he is God... And this passage is very comforting, and it has some serious implications for us. Because not only does this passage make it it clear that Jesus is God, it shows us that Jesus, the God-man, comes into the storm with us, but not only that, he's also above the storm. 
Jesus is in the storm. What does that mean? As we've already seen, Jesus has been keeping his eye on the disciples through this whole storm. He's, they've never been out of his sight. He's never been unaware of what's going on. He's had nothing but a sort of focus, a locked-on focus on these guys. And he's filled with compassion. He sees them struggling, and Jesus moves towards the disciples. He walks out on the water, and he joins them. He moves towards them. He enters into the struggle with them. Jesus doesn't look out and see the disciples struggling and say, ah, they'll figure it out. They'll push through it. You know, they're mentally tough. I, I have faith in that. Jesus looks at them and sees them in their weakness and says, I have to do something about it. I need to go out there and be there. And so he does. And this is profound because in every other religion, it's talking, every other religion talks about how man gets to God, right? How do we get toward God? It's you pray in this direction. You, you do X amount of hours of community service. You be X amount of a moral person, right? Man has to earn his way towards God. But, but the God of the Bible, Jesus, has flipped it where God comes toward man. But what kind of people does God move toward? That's a great question. Is it the spiritually elite? Is it those with the purest of faith? Is it those who have the power to stay positive through the struggles? I certainly hope not because if that were the case, Jesus would be sitting on the bank for a long, long time. Jesus looks out. He sees men struggling. He sees men who are hard-hearted. Jesus' activity of moving toward people is not dependent upon the current state of the heart. It's dependent upon Jesus' compassion. Jesus looks out and he sees people who, who are struggling to believe who Jesus really is. People who don't have their ducks in a row. People whose faith is unstable and inconsistent. The people who are hard-hearted. And I know you well enough, and I know myself well enough to know that this is us. That we are these disciples. We are the hard-hearted ones. But this should be a great comfort to us to see that Jesus is filled with compassion and he moves towards his disciples. That Jesus' ability to enter into his struggles is not dependent upon the current state of our hearts, but it's dependent on his compassion. And Jesus moves towards us in our hard-heartedness with the desire that our hearts would be made soft, that we would be receptive to his word, to hear it and to believe it and to bear fruit in light of it. Not only is Jesus in the storm with hard-hearted people, but Jesus is also above the storm. What does that mean? Jesus is in control of the storm. That in fact, actually, Jesus sends these disciples out into the storm as he's in control of it. Jesus is in authority over the turmoil and over the struggle. There is no greater illustration than what happens in this passage where Jesus literally is treading on the waves, walking on top of water. It's causing, Jesus is stepping on the things. He's above the things that are causing the disciples so much struggle and so much pain and turmoil. And as Jesus steps into the boat, the storm stops. Last time Jesus was in the, in the water when the storm was going on, he spoke to the storm. This time Jesus steps foot in the boat and the storm stops. That's how authoritative Jesus is in control over all creation. To know the real Jesus, we must realize that he's God and he is both in and above the storm and the struggles that we face. If we don't understand this, 
if we don't understand this, then, then our view of Jesus can be lopsided. It's either we believe he's above the storm, right? We believe that he's in control, but it makes us feel like God's distant. We, we say we know he's in control. Yeah, we say all day long we'll say, oh, yeah, God's sovereign. He's in control. I can trust him. But it, it doesn't shake the feeling that, that God's kind of off in a remote place, pulling the puppet strings, you know, making things unfold, that he's distant from us, leaving us to deal with our struggles on our own. And if that's the case, we need to see the raw power and authority of Jesus. Uh, we need to see Jesus entering into the struggles with us, right? We need to see him coming in and being intimate with us in the midst of our struggles. Others of us might be thinking, sure, Jesus comforts me in the storm, right? He's, he's kind of that, that teddy bear thing I can snuggle up to. But can he really do anything about it? Like, can he really be a comfort to me? Can he, does he have the power to change my circumstances? If that's the case, we need to see the Jesus who's in power over the sea. We need to see the Jesus who treads on top of our struggles, to see the raw power and authority that Jesus has over the things that are seemingly uncontrollable. The real Jesus, if the real Jesus is going to be a comfort to us in the midst of our very real storms and struggles, we need to know the Jesus who is God, the Jesus who is in and above the storms. We need to know the Jesus who's powerful and ever-present in our time of need. But more importantly, we need the Jesus who enters our greatest storm and our biggest struggle in life. Because if he can handle that storm, then he can handle any storm. And that struggle, that massive storm that we face is a struggle of being right with God. Because we're all hard-hearted people, because we're all sinful, because we follow in the steps of our first father, Adam, we have a hard time hearing God's word, and believing it. We have a hard time believing that Jesus is God and that he is in and above the storm. When God says that he's good enough and glorious enough, we don't believe him. When he says that he's gracious and loving, we don't think it's true. When he he says he's in and above the storm, we have a hard time believing him. It's this unbelief and our inability to take God at his word, to believe him and what he says that separates us from God. Romans 14 Paul tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, and it is that sin, that unbelief in who God is, that Jesus is God, that he is in and above the storm that separates us from God. Isaiah 53 tells us that your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and that your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. This is the nature of our greatest storm, that God is distant. Right? That God is off on the shore, we can't get to him, we can't reach him. That we're completely separated. That we are removed from his care and his protection. We're alone at sea, completely incapable of getting to God on our own. We're like disciples toiling and fighting through the waves only to get nowhere. We perform and we try to be strong enough, we try to be moral enough, we try to be smart enough, to be beautiful enough to get near to God. We try to earn our righteousness, we try to earn our right standing with God, if we just row harder, if we push through, if we, if we bear down a little bit harder, then we'll get there. If I'd be a good enough father or husband, if, if I'm a good enough businessman, if I'm successful, then God will accept me. Then I'll get to God. But no matter how hard we try, we can't make it for sure. That's the difficulty of trying to make ourselves right with God. We can try paddling and paddling all our life, and, and we, 
And at the end of it, we just find ourselves drifting further and further away from God. This is because our attempts at self-righteousness are useless. Our, our attempts to row are, are not helpful. They don't go in, they get us anywhere. Isaiah says, because of our sin, the sin in our hearts, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Even when we try to do good moral things, they're like filthy rags. He says that we all fade like the leaf and our iniquities like the wind, take us further and further away. He's saying that all our attempts at self-righteousness, all of our attempts at proving ourselves are like paddling and paddling, and they get us nowhere but further away from God. This is why we need the real Jesus. We need the Jesus who sees us in our failed attempts of righteousness, the Jesus who looks out at the water and has compassion, who's moved towards us, the Jesus who's in power, who walks out on the sea, and gets in our boat and makes the storm stop in its tracks. This is the Jesus we need. The gospel tells us that Jesus had to do more than just get in the boat to stop the storm. He had to take our place. That Jesus had to become our sin. He had to, to, to feel the weight of our unbelief. And upon him, God's judgment was poured out. Jesus didn't just enter into the storm and hop in our boat. Jesus climbed up onto the cross that we deserve to be hung on. And on this cross, Jesus felt the storm of God's wrath completely poured out on him. Jesus felt what it was like to be separated from God. Jesus felt the waves of death roll over him and wash under him, over him and pull him under. And he did this Jesus did this for you, for us, so we would not have to experience this ultimate storm. Jesus did this so we wouldn't have to live as if we were on the rower. Always trying to prove ourselves by our failed attempts at righteousness. Jesus did this so he could offer us a true and real righteousness. That we could be credited with his perfect standing before God and be brought back into relationship with God so that we could stop trying to save ourselves with our frantic rowing of self-righteousness. It's in this great storm where Jesus proves to us once and for all that he is in fact God, that Jesus proves to us he is in the storm by putting on flesh and entering into the great turmoil. He proves to us that he is above the storm by defeating sin and death once and for all. And it's this real Jesus that we need. This is the only Jesus that can be of any comfort to us through our our struggles. He's the only Jesus that can be powerful in the midst of our weakness. And it's because of this reality that Jesus has faced our greatest storm that we can do precisely what he tells us to do in verse 50 when he says, take heart. Because Jesus is God He is in and above the storm. We can trust him. We can take heart. But here's the thing. It's not easy, right? Faith, belief, laying hold of those truths. It's not easy to take heart in the midst of the struggles, right? Like it's it's the stuff that we know in our heads, but it's stuff that we, we don't really come to grips with in our heart when we're facing the difficult times. Faith in Jesus is hard. We have to work at it. We have to really work at our faith in Jesus. I'm not saying we have to work at it to prove ourselves. That's already been done, right? That's what we're working hard to put our faith in, that Jesus has actually accomplished what he tells us he's accomplished. 
I'm talking about working to believe what's already been accomplished. It's already been done. So how do we do it? What does this look like to take heart? There's two things. One, we preach the gospel to ourselves. And two, we live in community. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves moment by moment. What do I mean by that? Well, Martin Lloyd, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he said something um, along the lines of that we spend, we spend too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time talking to ourselves. What's that mean? Like in our minds, in our hearts, there's always this, this constant self-talk of unbelief, of fear, of kind of giving into our anxieties. And so this is kind of like the driving force in our life if, if it goes unchecked, that these fears and these insecurities, this, this kind of uncertainty can really have a sway in our life. So if we, if we speak into those things with the truth of the gospel, if we're preaching to ourselves, those fears are alleviated, those are eliminated, that there's comfort found in the midst of those fears. So that's what it looks like. We rehearse the gospel, the good news that Jesus is already standing before God and he has proved himself perfect for us, right? And that we are now beneficiaries in that, that we are considered perfect and righteous because of what Jesus has done. That's what it looks like to preach this to ourselves, to press this truth deep down into our hearts. And, and thankfully, we aren't left to do it alone. Right? We're not left in our struggles all by ourselves. That by saving us from our greatest storm, God has placed us in the context of a new family. He's given us a gospel family of people who can help point us back to the gospel when we forget it, when it comes hard to preach this gospel to ourselves. And it's when we're honest and forthright about our struggles, when we're upfront and honest with our weakness, when this family, when this community can be loving and caring towards us and and point us back to the gospel. This is when our missional community can come around us and love us the best and lead us to Jesus. And as a family of gospel-centered missionaries, it's our delight it's our, it's our joy to be like Jesus to those who are struggling, to those who are in the midst of a storm, that we can enter into those situations with these people. And it's not our job to fix their problems. It's not our, our job to kind of press through the storm with them or kind of get, get around those things like that. Our job is to show them the one who is both in and above the storm, lead them to Jesus so that they can see the relief that he offers in the gospel. And as I close, I want to leave those of you who are in the midst of a storm or are heading into a storm, I want to leave you with these two thoughts that come through this gospel that, that are game changers, really. <clears throat> that as we trust Jesus in the storm, that these things can be a great comfort to us. First is that your struggles and your suffering, they aren't punishment. God isn't punishing you by putting you into a, a season of struggle. Jesus sent the disciples out into the storm, right? He didn't do this to, because he was mad at them. He didn't do this um, to, to prove a point and say, oh, you should, you should have figured it out. You should have been better. This, this isn't Jesus punishing disciples. That if you're in Christ, your punishment has been handled once and for all by Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. That there's no leftover punishment that you have to take up on your own, that you have to bear for yourself. That it's all been poured out on Jesus. It's because of this that you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be afraid of these struggles as if they're they're punishment. Because Jesus shows us that in our struggling, he wants to show us himself is what he's doing. By taking us into seasons of struggling, he wants to open our eyes to see who he is. And secondly, your struggles and your suffering aren't meaningless. 
You don't go through seasons of difficulty for no good reason. You don't, you don't do it because God, like I said, he's not trying to punish you. He's not upset with you. These seasons of struggle have a great purpose in them. In these storms, God wants you to gain a greater understanding of who Jesus is. He wants you to understand who the real Jesus is. He wants you to know that you're in good hands because the one who is in power over the storm and the one who is in the storm with you cares deeply for you. And he wants what's best for you. He wants you to know that Jesus was, is with you in the midst of these storms. He wants you to, to put your faith in the man who treaded on top of the roaring sea. and To take the blunt of God's wrath for you. He wants you to know who Jesus is, the real Jesus. And this very morning, Jesus is giving us the opportunity to reject our hard hearts. To hear and to believe the word to trust that Jesus is God and that he is in and above the storm. He gives us a heart that is secure in the freely given righteousness of Christ, the the grace of God that pours out grace upon grace to us so that we don't have to produce a type of self-righteousness, a heart that clings to Jesus no matter how hard or how high the waves of struggle press up against us. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity to remember that Jesus is both in and above the storm. Right now, in this moment of, of need, the meal is a means of grace where God shows us that he is right here. He is right here present at the table. Just as we consume the bread and the wine, we take within us the Holy Spirit who lives within us. This meal also is a reminder that Jesus is above our greatest storm, that We do this as a reminder of the crucified and raised Savior, the one who death could not contain. We do this as a reminder that one day we will eat this meal as a sign of victory in the full presence of God because Jesus has brought us to him. He has has entered into the storm and he has calmed the seas of God's wrath. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he did not just come as a teacher, as some sort of moral guide, moral compass. He came as the Savior, the one who would enter into our deepest and most dreaded storm and face your wrath. That would face the storm of struggle, of trying to prove ourselves to you, of trying to be made right with you. And he he did this for us. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. And he offers this to us free of charge. We have nothing to contribute to this. Um, we didn't position ourselves in a, in a likable light so that we would receive this. This is all by grace that Jesus sees us in our storms. He sees us in the agony and the suffering, and he comes towards us in our time of need. So we give you thanks that this Jesus is both in the storm, that he's here with us, he's a comfort to us, that, that he doesn't leave us or forsake us, that just as he promised in the Great Commission that, that he will not leave us or forsake us, or, or he's, as we go out on mission, he will not leave us for he is with us until the end of the age. And we also give you thanks that he's above the storm, that you're in control of all things, that you're working out all things, all our struggles for our good, and we can trust in you, that you would give us soft hearts, soft hearts that understand your word, that hear it and receive it and believe it, and that we bear fruit because of it. We ask that this would be true, that the Spirit would dwell in us and produce this fruit. And we ask this in our 
Our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.